Welcome to The Naked Truth, real talk about West Coast Swing. My name is Eric, and in today's episode, I chat with fellow dancer and friend of the show, Dr. Divi Ravindranath, about understanding and managing our emotional and psychological well-being during this pandemic. But first, a thank you to those of you who have sent in your stories for the podcast. As a reminder, you can submit your pandemic experience to the show by leaving me a message on my Google Voice account at one 545 3173 or by going to the slash COVID to send me a written message. Whether you leave a voicemail or send me a message, please tell me your name, your location, what your situation is, how you're feeling, and how you're managing your relationship with dance during this period. I'd like to share one such story with you today. This comes from a dancer in New York, Vivian Young. She writes, I live in an apartment in the Bronx, two miles away from my mother's apartment. Since I live alone, being alone here feels normal. I've been trying for years to get back to practicing the piano, and this situation has made that possible. I now practice every day. After retirement five years ago, I gave up yoga to go back to studying ballet. I return to yoga for now by taking an online class every morning. In hopes that my upcoming fall trip to Israel is not canceled, I am studying Hebrew. Surprisingly, I'm handling this situation quite well, but I think it's because I know that it is not a permanent existence. I'm also patient and adapt well to new situations. I don't feel lonely since I can visit my mother anytime I want. I don't feel confined because I can leave my home whenever I want to run errands or take a walk. It's not difficult to practice social distancing given that there are so few people on the streets. Contrary to popular belief, many New Yorkers do own cars, as do I, so I don't have to use public transportation and can avoid contact with others by being in my car. Before switching exclusively to West Coast Swing, I was a line dancer for nine years. Since I can't dance West Coast Swing now, I have returned to line dancing by participating in weekly classes that line dance instructors make available online. I'll be including other stories in upcoming episodes, so please send in yours. Hopefully hearing other stories will help us all feel a little less alone during this time and maybe help us find new ways to cope and adapt. Speaking of coping and adapting, I sat down with Dr. Divi Ravindranath recently to discuss how this pandemic is affecting people and how we can take care of our mental health during this time. Longtime listeners will know Dr. Ravindranath from our earlier episodes on mental health and expectations. You should listen to those if you haven't already or revisit them if you have. Divi is a board-certified psychiatrist and assistant director of inpatient mental health at the Palo Alto Veterans Affairs Healthcare Center and clinical associate professor affiliated at Stanford University's School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Not only is he an experienced psychiatrist, but he's also a West Coast swing dancer and DJ who lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with his wife Joanna, his new baby boy, and his dog. As a reminder, all content shared on this show is reflective of his own opinion and not endorsed by Stanford University or the federal government, and nothing said here is intended to represent clinical advice. Listeners should work with their own medical providers for personalized assessment and treatment recommendations. With that said, please welcome back to the show, Dr. Divi Ravindranath. Dr. Divi Ravindranath, welcome back to The Naked Truth. So good to talk with you again. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's fantastic. So how are you doing? And how has this pandemic been affecting you? 
Uh, well, you know, uh, we're hanging in there. Um, I uh, work in a hospital uh, in the Bay Area, and uh, some of my duties have me seeing patients in the medical surgical hospital. Some of my duties have me seeing patients in the emergency department, and some have me working in the actual psychiatry hospital. Um, and so each of those environments has really had to change with the expectation uh, that a, a more the majority of patients, if not the you know, the, all the patients we're seeing are going to be coming in with coronavirus. Um, so uh, flow for patients have changed in the emergency department. Flow for patients in the medical hospital has changed. My workflow has changed in parallel. And so a lot of what's been happening at work has been trying to keep up with all the various things, making sure that we provide the best care we can under the restrictions that are there so we don't use up PPE unex uh, unnecessarily, mm -hmm. so we don't expose ourselves, we don't expose somebody else to whatever virus we might be carrying, so on and so forth. Um, on the personal side, I'm uh, married and I have a baby son and a dog. And, you know, shelter in place has been fun for them, the dog <laughs> especially. Um, the big issue is that uh, our son is out of daycare, um, which means my wife, who also works, has to watch him all day long because I have to go in. And then when he goes to bed, she has to do her job. Oh, and man. so it's like, it's like between us, we're both working, uh, you know, 20 hours per day yeah. in, some, in some fraction or division. On top of that, my mother's trapped in India right now. My sister's a hospitalist, and so she is in direct patient contact with patients with coronavirus. And so all this is a big stressor, yeah. uh, but it's, the stress is there, and you just have to deal with it. Yeah. What sort of stress is Joanna going through with work? Is she able to work from home just with these off hours? Yeah, yeah. Some of her work is completely asynchronous, and some of it has to be done you know, with people there. And so meetings and stuff like everybody else is working from home. You have your kids on your lap and mm -hmm. the cat walks through the camera and that's right. just how it goes. right? <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's just how it goes. And so, uh, whatever, um, whatever work is being done is being done. Yeah. So you are also a West coast swing dancer. Mm -hmm. What's your relationship with the dance right now? Are you practicing and dancing with Joanna? Or are you just kind of stepping away from it? Do you miss it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I miss it completely. And, yeah. um, I've, been missing it since the baby was born uh, to go back into the scene when, you know, you have to be taking care of somebody who has no capacity to take care of themselves is a challenge. And so, you know, we were thinking to ourselves, okay, he's about ready to go with a babysitter. He's about ready to go with a babysitter. We can actually get a night off and go dancing and coronavirus. Right. <laughs> and here we are. Right. Uh, so my connection to the dance scene right now has been, you know, dancing with my wife a little bit, but, um, mostly listening to music and being like, oh, that's such a great phrase change. Or, <laughs> uh, watching videos in my whatever few minutes of downtime I have and saying, oh, man, that was such a great dance. And so yeah. On, so. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's tough. I mean, it's tough for all of us right now. So in your experience, how are people reacting to or experiencing this pandemic? What have you seen are the impacts on people's mental health? Mm -hmm. So this is a maybe one of two or three times in my lifetime where the nation has been faced with its own mortality so seriously. Mm -hmm. And the, the last one that I, the last one that comes to mind is, was 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, and when 9-11 happened, everybody, there was a moment where we thought, oh my God, there was a terrorist attack on American soil of this magnitude. Nobody is safe, right? right? Everybody had to scramble and everybody was like, we could die any day. Mm -hmm. basically. And then the, there were a variety of behaviors that came out as a result. In my professional life, what I'm seeing right now are um, 
people who are coming to the hospital because of their anxieties about getting the virus and also people who are coming to the hospital with their anxieties about what are they going to do? How are they going to manage this? There have been people who came because they can't manage shelter in place because the people are staying with are not the people they should be staying with. Right. And there have been people who have been coming saying, well, I lost my job. I lost everything. What do I do with myself? Yeah. Right. So it's been uh, real serious from all different directions. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross described various stages of grief that people go through when they lose a loved one. Mm -hmm. And uh, those stages are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. And it was initially, I think, described as a linear pathway, but now it's more understood that people kind of bounce back and forth between these different things. Um, And uh, in the movie Avengers Endgame, Mm -hmm. uh, after the snapture, Right. Uh, the uh, various characters all portray some elements of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, without, I'll put a spoiler alert here. If people don't want spoilers about the end game, then, then skip ahead, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, like Thor was sitting in his man cave with his buddies playing video games and drinking beer as if nothing happened. Right. Right. So that kind of embodies denial. Whereas Hawkeye was going around the planet killing people because of the rage he experienced when bodying rage. And then yeah. Black Widow was trying to fix things, right? Kind of the bargaining perspective. And Captain America was going to therapy groups <laughs> because he was so depressed. Right. And finally at Iron Man, who was just trying to live his life because Snapchat happened and we all have to move along. Yeah. Uh, so each of these perspectives is represented in the way that people are reacting to the current tragedy as well, uh, where you know people who are in denial might say things like, oh, it's only old people who are at risk. And so if you're young and healthy, you don't have to worry about it, which is not true. If you're young and healthy, you have to worry about it from so many different perspectives. Or people who are angry might be going out and protesting against the government because the reaction, the government's now overreacted and resulting in the loss of X, Y, and Z thing. Mm-hmm. Right? And that anger is coming out in that way. People are bargaining. You know, Early on in this, there was a, a thing floating around Facebook about gargling with salt water and about how the virus couldn't tolerate salt water. Right. So it's like only if, if we only gargled salt water, or if we can only hold our breath for 10 seconds or whatever it was, then you know, it proves that it's okay. And then depression, self-explanatory. And there are a handful of people who are like, okay, this is our reality. We have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to. And that's the mode of acceptance where I think everybody wants to be, but it's kind of hard to get there. Yeah. And the thing with this pandemic too is that there's so many aspects to it, right? Because as you said, there are people who are concerned about getting the virus itself or concerned Mm -hmm. about their loved ones getting it. But we also have the economic um, issue. We have the issue of being at home and some people are home alone and that's really isolating. How do you see all of these different issues playing out? You know, are you seeing people kind of struggling with one aspect? What does it look like when people are struggling with multiple and... Mm -hmm. What sort of symptoms are people showing? I mean, some people may be more cognizant of how they're feeling, but I feel like others may be showing it in ways that even they aren't aware. Right, right. So um, so what's happening uh, with so much uncertainty about this, right? And it's uncertainty not just about the virus, not just about whether you have the virus, because there's this asymptomatic period, right, where mm-hmm. people can you know, have the har- be harboring the virus but not really show it. Um, the lack of testing makes it even more uncertain. Uh, the lack of u- unity in our leadership makes it even more uncertain. 
Mm-hmm. And there's so many different futures that can come from this, right? Which is yields a lot of, I don't know, right. yields a lot of maybe. And here, maybe really means maybe. And there are a variety of people who will say maybe because they mean no, right? Or maybe because they mean yes. But I literally mean we don't know. We don't know what our future is going to hold. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing that activates anxiety better than uncertainty, yeah. right? That when we know what our future is going to hold, then, okay, we can tamp some things down, make some preparations, and go. But, you know, come tomorrow, those preparations could be completely out the door. So there's um, there's that level of anxiety. And then, as you mentioned, there's the anxieties associated with shelter in place. Like maybe you have to shelter with people who are threats, mm-hmm. people who are abusive, right? Uh, or people who are not going to accept you for who you are. Like a, the example I've heard is somebody who is who's gay but has to stay in the closet because of the people they're sheltering with. Um, and then issues of chemical dependency when people are sheltering in place, mm-hmm. where uh, you know now people who've been sober for X number of time have been able to control their alcohol dependence because they have nothing else to do. All of a sudden, are going back to the bottle. Yeah. And then sheltering alone is you're now deprived of social contact. Like we use solitary confinement in prisons. As a means of punishment, right? right? Or at least we have in the past. I'm not sure if they do that anymore, but and that's kind of what a lot of people have been forced into, mm-hmm. right? And then the layer on top of that is the economic uncertainty, right? And the stress of having to work from home when you have other household responsibilities, or if you have job loss, or what if you're an essential worker, right? Right, and you have to go because your health insurance is tied to this, your rent check is tied, to, your rent payments are tied to this, but you don't have the PPE you need. Mm-hmm right? Uh, the personal protective equipment. So all these anxieties are all there. And like people um, may find themselves in multiple of these categories. And in moments, they're anxious about one thing, and then bounce to another thing, and then bounce to another thing, and bounce to another thing. And it's like the mind will never shut down. Right. And if the mind doesn't shut down, then uh, you can't sleep, you can't relax, can't concentrate, can't eat, and can't do a lot of things because you're so mentally preoccupied. Mm-hmm. Another another way I've seen seen this described is um, that we're all kind of in this heightened fight or flight phase, right? Mm-hmm. Our sympathetic nervous system is all up to a certain degree, and that generates that mental, like mind can't shut down feeling. Right. Uh, uh, and then the end result is one of three things: people get angry and they want to fight. Uh, people want to hide and go into denial, right? Mm-hmm. Or people want to flee. Right, they want to just get out of this. However, they can do it, they want to get out of this, and so people are representing their internal anxieties in these various ways. What are some of the more subtle ways that people express some of this anxiety? What are possible symptoms that people can look for in themselves to kind of gauge their own level of stress or how they're handling this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so uh, things like having trouble falling asleep, hmm. right? Watching TV and your mind goes to something else. And it always seems to go back to that thing, right. whatever that thing is, whatever type of anxiety that is. Um, uh, feeling a lot of muscle tension, right? When you're usually not such a tense person, all of a sudden your shoulders feel like they're locked up. Or butterflies in the stomach. Like These are all very um, core symptoms of anxiety. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that only a couple of times in your lifetime have we gone through sort of a big national crisis. Mm-hmm. And you referred, for instance, to 9-11. How does something like what we're going through or the ways in which we're reacting to it compare to other life events and experiences? You talked about mm-hmm. 
the stages of grief of losing a loved one, for example. Um, how is this similar to things that we kind of go through in the course of our lives normally? Sure. And how is this mm-hmm. different? Yeah. So the disease anxiety and then shelter in place, especially, has really shaken a lot of people's sense of themselves. Mm. Right. And so you can think about other times when people's identity is shook. Uh, job loss, mm-hmm. right, is a time when somebody's identity is shaken. Like their whole life, they've considered themselves to be an employee of IBM or whatever it is. And now they're laid off. And so who are they, anyways? Right. Right. Um, um, being diagnosed with a serious disease like cancer is another situation where there's a real shakeup to somebody's identity. Um, and I think that's. You know, it's like everything's thrown up in the air. Right. And so what's going on anyway? So that's kind of what I liken this experience to. Mm-hmm. Not not to denigrate those other experiences. They're quite serious as sure. well. Right. But um, but this can be on par, certainly for people who are out there who are experiencing those symptoms that I talked about before. Yeah. Is this different from any other experience? Or is it really just a combination of different things that one might experience in their lives anyway? Um, oh, this is very different. Like, uh, this is a once-in-a-century pandemic, mm-hmm. right? And so there's really no playbook yeah. for this one. There's a playbook for job loss. Right. Right? You lost your job, okay. If you have unemployment benefits, apply. If, once you get those, you can figure out whether your skill set is viable in the current economy and then go to it, right? If not, then go retrain. If yes, then apply. Mm-hmm. Um, you got a disease. Okay, so here's your treatment plan. Uh, these are the sorts of things we can offer you. This is what we would expect if you were to pursue it. You can decide whether you want to pursue it or not. Right? There's a game plan. Right. There's no game plan for this one. There's a lot of uncertainty and, you know, how and when we go and shelter in place, what exactly that's going to look like, which jobs, are, which sorts of companies are essential, right? Um, who's got to work this? How are you going to do that? Like, these are all being written on the fly. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it so it's very hard to compare. Yeah. So what then should people do to take care of themselves and those around them during this time? Mm-hmm. So um, the various ways that people bind their anxiety, I always like that term, bind your anxiety, you know, because it, it, makes it makes it clear that anxiety will always be there, mm-hmm. right? But you can kind of strap it down. Yeah. So that if it, and then find a way to restrap it down if it pokes his head up, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the various ways people bind their anxiety, in general, are with knowledge, with exposure, or with routine. Um, so uh, knowledge. So if somebody's anxious about a cancer diagnosis, for example, they might find themselves asking a lot of questions, right? Uh, talking to people who might have had that diagnosis before. Googling things, right? Hopefully from trustworthy sources, talking to their doctor about what there is, right? And so a lot of people who are anxious may find themselves just kind of voraciously absorbing information about this virus, right? And there's a lot of it out there. There's stuff in the news, right? There's stuff in the science. There's um, various blog posts. There's bad stuff that's being sent around around um, WhatsApp, so on and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, having that knowledge helps to bind anxiety. The trick here is that you want to make sure your knowledge is coming from trustworthy sources. And otherwise, you know, what you think might be true proves not to be, and then the anxiety comes right back. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's knowledge. The second way is exposure. Um, and exposure is when if you're afraid of something, then you kind of build up the courage 
to deal with it, to look at it, to touch it, to hear it, whatever it might be. So for example, if somebody's phobic of spiders, um, then an exposure type treatment might involve firstly looking at printouts, pictures of spiders, right? So that until that becomes calm and comfortable, and then you go on to the next phase and look at uh, videos of spiders, now they're moving, right? And so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And as I'm saying this, somebody in the listening audience is like, I'm phobic of spiders. That's How me. dare you? That's me. <laughs> How dare you bring this up? <laughs> Anyhow, at the end of the day, right, once the treatment plan is done, then to engage with the topic is not is not quite as anxiety provoking. Mm-hmm. In this situation, exposure to coronavirus is not a good idea. Right. Right. And in fact, shelter in place is built around the idea that we should not be exposing ourselves to it. In the medical system, um, you know, those of us who are working in hospitals, the first time a case of coronavirus comes through, it's like, oh my God, what do we do? What do we do? Right. And then as you see the 10th one and the 20th one and so on and so forth, anxiety goes in one of two directions. Either it becomes heightened with every case or it decreases because of exposure. And when it decreases, there's risk now of breaking the protocols right? Not doing your PPE correctly, so on and so forth. And it makes it, you know, if this becomes commonplace, then do you actually put on your mask the way you're supposed to? Do you actually do your hand hygiene the way you're supposed to? So on and so forth. So it's easy with exposure to get lackadaisical about this particular problem and that it carries some very real risks. Mm -hmm. So um, when we think about exposure in terms of coronavirus anxiety, uh, it's probably best done virtually in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, Hearing about people's stories right? What it's like, what it's really like, and so on and so forth. That's probably the only way to do it. And then the final way that people bind anxiety is by having routine, right? Having a schedule. And this is the way that I think it's going to be most effective for people who are experiencing anxiety about um, about the virus or the economic consequences or the shelter in place, whatever it might be. Just do the best you can uh, to sleep at the same time, to wake up at the same time, to have your meals at the same time, to do your social contacts at the same time, to do your productive work at the same time of the day. And that way, every day kind of has a rhythm to it. Mm -hmm. And it makes it so that some of these things do not have to be dealt with while the mind has to deal with these other anxieties that are out there, Mm -hmm. right? You know, 10 a.m. comes along and that's when you call your mother, Mm -hmm. right? Just do it every day. And then you might find yourself in a better spot. Uh, Some people are not able to do productive work right now Mm -hmm. uh, because they don't have a job that's amenable to work from home. Maybe they've lost their job, uh, whatever it might be. And, you know, when I say productive work, it doesn't have to be work for money. It could be uh, getting a hobby. It could be having a pet, right? That your pet is the thing you're doing right now. Uh, And for people who are allergic, then uh, think about those. Remember the Tamagotchi yeah, that's right. Oh my gosh, that's right. <laughs> the little day. virtual things, yeah. Little virtual pets, right? Or like I've seen on uh, social media, all these people who have taken up cooking or taken up baking or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And this is a way to fill your time to do something that adds to your world as opposed to subtracts from it. Yeah. Um, so a routine, having a schedule, and then finally in that sort of a subset of that is having a ritual, right? And so... Um, uh, I forget which city this was, but some city out there have neighborhoods where at eight at eight p.m. everybody comes out of their house and howls, and it's just a ritual that the city has adopted. It's silly, mm-hmm. right? What are you people doing howling at eight p.m. Right? But it's a way for everybody in that city to bind their anxiety to 
sort of demonstrate we're all in this together. And indeed, we all we are all in this together. Yeah. So some of those I could see working for different people different ways, right? For instance, if you so for if you have a lot of fears about the virus, but you read about it, that could actually cause more anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. To an extent. But like you said, on the flip side, if you don't read enough or if you don't have any of that quote unquote exposure to what's going on, you could actually be putting yourself more at risk. Mm-hmm. How do we find that balance of staying informed so you know what you need to do to protect yourself, but not letting yourselves run away with it? Sure. So, um, so the anxious mind can run away with um, with knowledge seeking, right, as a way to bind the anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if you find yourself doing that, the best thing to do is to um, is to make sure you set yourself a limit, like okay, I'm going to read about coronavirus on the internet for an hour today. And that's part of my ritual. That's part of my routine is that from one to two in the afternoon, that's when I get on the internet and I read about coronavirus. And that's it. That's the time you get. Any other links you want to follow, follow them tomorrow. Right? Because if this is a daily routine, there will be a tomorrow. There'll be time for it. Um, Sometimes the desire to pursue can keep people awake. And so... um, one thing that I found useful in treatment of people with anxiety disorders for which this is a problem is to have a bedside journal. And so as you're falling asleep, if one of those thoughts comes to you, I've got to look this up. i got to look this up right now. No, you don't have to look it up right now. You can look it up in the morning when you wake up or whenever you have that hour of internet time or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. So write it down in the bedside journal that this is the thing you're going to look up tomorrow. And that way there's a playbook for what you're going to look for the next day. Yeah, that's a great idea. So one thing that has occurred to me personally, and that I've heard from others, is this idea that, well, we have more time now, Mm -hmm. so we should be, for instance, practicing dance more, Mm -hmm. or we should be taking up a hobby. There's sort of a self-imposed, I don't know, productivity expectation. And yet, like you said, a lot of times we're in fight or flight mode around these kind of situations. What's your feeling about that? You know, people who maybe feel pressured to be productive, but don't feel like being productive. Yeah. So the idea that we have more time is a bit of a fallacy. And I think that there are some people out there who really do have more time uh, because, you know, they're not able to work. (laughs) And so all of that time is now available, right? right? I'll tell you, work from home is a lot harder than work from work. Right. Because when you're at home, you have to attend to all those things. Right. And how many times have we been, been in uh, Zoom meetings uh, and the half the meeting is taken up with, oh, check your mic. Oh, you might be on mute. Oh, what your connection's bad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Whereas that meeting could have been done in half the time if it was in, if it was in person. Mm-hmm. Right. So the idea that we have more time, I don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. And on top, situations like what we have where, you know, the partner who works from home also has to take care of the household, mm-hmm. right? Whereas before that would be handed off to, not to say raising our son is a, you know, a task, what have you, but the, uh, but there'd be other people who could be involved in that, mm-hmm. right? Uh, to make it a little bit um, more feasible with all the other responsibilities that we carry. Um, so, um so if you're in that situation where actually, no, you don't have more time, right? You actually have less time. Then it's, don't even think about 
don't even worry about being productive in whatever hobby you're going to do, dance or otherwise, right? For folks who really do have the time, they're great. Go for it. Right. Right. Um, so that's that's the time question. The other aspect of that question is what if the motivation is not there? Mm-hmm. Right. What if the motivation is not there? Well, I, that's also very understandable. Right. Going back to what we were talking about before, the future is very uncertain. And whether and when this dance comes back and in what form it takes is completely unknown. Right. And so uh, so if the motivation is not there, that might be OK. It might be because you don't know what you're working towards. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so when everything is up in the air, it's easy to not be motivated. I think that's what I'm down to. Yeah. And I've talked with some of my students here about that, where exactly what you said, they aren't sure what they're working towards. When am I going to use this? How do I even know if I'm doing it right? If I'm not actually social dancing with people, right? It's really hard when you don't have that feedback or the expectation of applying the information. Mm-hmm. in any hobby, let alone dance, to know that this is worth doing, um, yep. to have that motivation. So I am seeing that in a lot of people that I work with here in Minnesota. Yeah. So it's okay, right? If you need to take a break, take a break. Mm-hmm. So given everything that's going on from you, where you sit, I know you sit in California, which has a different political landscape than say Minnesota or South Dakota or Texas. Mm-hmm. What is it that you see going on that's going well? And what would you like to see our government or officials or healthcare system do to help people cope and adapt during this time? Yeah. So gosh, so I'm, I'm going to be careful in answering this question uh, because as a federal employee, I also don't want to say, um, say something uh, that I don't mean that could be taken out of context, if you know what I mean. Sure. Uh, so uh, with that advisory there, I would say that um, shelter in place has been um, uh, an absolute mandatory step. And I'm glad that so many uh, localities, states, and the federal government all took that step. When that was done, it was necessary for controlling how quickly the virus was spreading to make sure that hospital systems do not get overwhelmed. And as somebody who works in a hospital system, greatly, greatly appreciate all the sacrifices that everybody has made to make this possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, The last thing I wanted to be doing was, you know, running a ventilator because all of my colleagues in in intensive care are down with coronavirus. You know what I mean? So, um, uh, so I'm glad we're not at that spot in California. And I'm uh, sorry for all those places that have been at that spot and are still are. Places like in Italy, uh, like in Wuhan when it started, um, in New York, uh, so on and so forth, that are really in bad spots right now. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think that shelter in place has gone well. Um, what's coming next is how do we move away from shelter in place? I prefer the term shelter in place rather than social distancing because so we don't want to we we want to have distance from each other people we don't want to stop being social and right. I think being social is really critical uh, to our emotional well being mm-hmm. right and so um, so that's why I'm using the term shelter in place anyhow so as we leave shelter in place how do we do that and I think this is what we're looking at now in a lot of uh, states government localities what have you um, and. As people go back to their lives, they'll find 
that things are different, and that's going to cause its own set of anxiety. Additionally, if this is done too fast, if it's done too exuberantly, uh, all the gains that are made from shelter in place go away, right. and we just have a have a peak after after it's all lifted, right? And so everyone's going to have to be really careful how things go here in the next few months. And I think by the time this we're recording now, but by the time this episode airs, we might have actually seen some of this happen mm -hmm. in various places as they open back up. Uh, the other thing that elected officials and leaders need to be ready for is um, after we have this um, surge of coronavirus cases and um, you know people make it through that, then they find what is now their life, right? People who have died and people who have gotten sick, jobs are lost, um, they've had to move, they've whatever it is. And with that, it's going to come a lot of depression, a lot of post-traumatic stress. And so uh, there will likely be a surge of mental health issues that comes on the heels of the infectious surge. Mm -hmm. So knowing that this physical distancing rather than social distancing may last a long time, mm -hmm. it's uncertain, but it may last a long time. It's quite possible in several places that it will. What do you think is the most important thing for our listeners to do right now mm -hmm. and in the long term to take care of their mental and emotional health? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So some of the stuff that I was talking about before about binding anxiety is things to think about for the listeners, mm -hmm. um, for themselves, and how, how are they going to do that? I think um, as dancers, many of us came to dance in general and West Coast Swing in particular to provide a way to bind anxiety, mm -hmm. right? to give us a routine and schedule, like every Wednesday night we go to MCS, for example, right. um, uh, to uh, give us some sort of distraction. Um, and that, that's not there, right? right? And so um, I think we all have to work hard to find ways uh, to replace aspects of it as best we can. Um, so uh, some of the things that are really good about dancing is music. And so find ways to keep music in your life, mm -hmm. right? Things that are good about dancing is movement. And so find ways to keep movement in your life. And then finally, things about the really good about dancing is socialization. And so find ways to keep social, even if you have to keep physically separated. The one thing we can't replace is physical connection. And that's, can't get that back unless, unless you are partnered, right. right? You can't get that back until all the all clear is there. Another question for you around this topic, because I am a dance teacher and I'm still involved with Mission City Swing. Is there anything that you would like to see our dance professionals or our dance community leaders doing to support the communities during this time? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I've seen a lot of people um, move their instruction online, mm -hmm. right? And so that's a great way to keep a community going around West Coast Swing. Um, as we get further and further away from the capacity for social dancing, I think motivation for that is going to wane. But people are still going to want the social connection that we get. And so I've also seen some communities and some leaders um, build uh, social connection more than instructional connection. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's where the need will be um, in the weeks and months to come. Yeah. So I don't want to leave people on a down note about how this is going to last a mm -hmm. while. What gives you hope right now? What do you hope to see when we do start 
coming back together again. Where does your hope and optimism come from now? Yeah, uh, well, you know, uh, this shelter in place has been a huge social experiment and is one that appears to have been successful, mm. right? So my hope comes from the notion that so many people who do not know each other, right, are doing this for the safety of strangers, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, so it's really uh, moving uh, to see that everybody can pull together like this. Yeah. Right. So my hope comes from that. Uh, my hope comes from um, uh, the idea that not everybody who gets sick dies. Yeah. Right. And there are some people who get the virus and you know, they survive it and everything's okay. Right. And so it means that this isn't, this isn't the snapshot. Right. Right. Half the population is not going to die. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's some hope there. It's still, it's still bad. Don't get me wrong. Right. But there's hope there that most of us will come away from this unscathed. Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, it's not going to be too much longer until we know. And what, once we know, then the, uncertainty is gone and once the uncertainty goes away then a lot of that anxiety goes away too and it's just a matter of rebuilding from where we're at is there anything you hope will be in that new future for either the general public or for dance i think this whole experience has given people the opportunity to see that we're all in the same boat but mm-hmm. i've given people two things one the opportunity to be with their families more yes Right. And so um, so we've got to see various developmental milestones for our son with our own eyes. Right. Right. Which we might not have been able to do if, you know, he was at daycare. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and uh, I see people in our neighborhood taking walks together as a family, which I never saw before. Yeah. Right. Um, I see them playing basketball in the driveway, which I never saw before. These sorts of things. Right. I've seen people adopt pets, dogs and cats, empty out shelters, right, in a way that I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And so all these things, you know, hopefully that carries forward once this is all done, right? Yeah. The other thing is that, um, and where I was going to a second ago before this other thought interceded was that this whole thing has shown that we're all in the same boat, right? And we might be in different parts of the boat. And it might be that, you know, up on the deck, it's a horrible storm and underneath it's nice and dry. Mm-hmm. Right. But um, we're, we are all in the same boat. And hopefully we come, come away with this with that understanding that humanity is humanity and um, we should all take care of each other and we should all be kind to each other. Um, I'll add just a couple of last lines, which is that if you are um, experiencing a lot of the stuff that I was talking about before, Obviously, this is not intended to be diagnosis and treatment here over a podcast, but please do seek out local professional supports. If you don't know where to start, you have a primary care doctor, you can always start there um, and then have the discussion. And, you know, most people at this point are doing telephone uh, examinations or um, connecting via a video chat sort of platform. And so you don't have to risk yourself by reaching out, uh, but please do reach out. And of course, if you're really feeling in crisis, are feeling suicidal even, um, emergency mental health services are always there. Even though you don't want to go to the emergency department, don't want to overburden them because of coronavirus and 
et cetera, et cetera. If you need the help, you're just as deserving as anybody else. Your community might even have an emergency department that's dedicated just for psychiatric issues. And so look around, right? You can get yourself to emergency services. Or if you can't get yourself to emergency services, you don't know where to turn, there is a national crisis line that can be called at 1-800-273-8255. And that's something I uh, dropped on the first podcast as well. Again, the number is 1-800-273-8255. Right? These are grim times, everyone, but we're going to make it through it. Um, Be kind to each other. Take care of everybody. Take care of yourselves. And hopefully this all works out okay. For sure. It will end. It will pass. Eventually. (laughs) Yes. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Divya. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and chat with me and, as always, share your wisdom with our listeners. Happy to do so, and thanks for having me back on the show. For sure. We'll talk to you soon. Great. As always, I really appreciate Divya's extensive knowledge, but even more so his calming and personal demeanor. As Tom Paderna mentioned in our episode from a couple of weeks ago, Divi explained how many people are experiencing grief right now. They are grieving the loss of what they had and the loss of what they thought they would have in their future. And I loved his Avengers analogy, a whole new lens through which to view that movie. But also an interesting lens to look at our own feelings. For me, I think I went through denial and maybe bargaining when the outbreak first happened. I don't think I was really angry about it much. But then I went through several weeks of a sort of depression, lack of motivation and energy, and I think I've been in acceptance for the last couple of weeks or so. Reading more about how this is going to play out in the long run has given me a better perspective, and it's helped me to come to terms with what's going on. If you're interested in reading more about the stages of grief, I encourage you to check out Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David Kessler's book on grief and grieving. David Kessler was also interviewed recently for an article in Harvard Business Review that's titled, That Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief. He talks about the current pandemic and also the sixth stage of grief, meaning. I'll share a link to that article in the book in the footnotes. I will also share a link to another book, Transitions by William Bridges, which is a well-known book in the organization development field. Bridges describes a model whereby we experience a loss of what we had and have to let go of something. Then we go through what he calls the neutral zone, a period of unknown turmoil, and then finally we come to accept a new reality or a new beginning. This reaction to change is something we go through internally, while change itself is something external that usually happens to us. And the inner transition often happens after the change. So, for instance, we may lose a loved one, which is the change, and then we go through Bridges' transition model, which may take some time. Anyway, links to his original book, Managing Transitions, and the updated version, Transitions, are both in the footnotes for you to check out. For those of you having difficulty in this time, and I imagine that's many of you, I hope you'll think more about Divi's framework for binding anxiety. Knowledge, exposure, and routine are three great ways to bind your anxiety and deal with the unknown. I know a big help for me during this time has been reading up on the pandemic, and the more I've learned about what's going on, the easier it is for me to keep perspective. I know it can be stressful for some to read about what's going on, especially what's not going on that should be going on, you know what I mean, but I'm someone who gets comfort from being informed. I've also had a pretty consistent routine, given that I work from home. Having a routine, especially during the week, has also helped me with my sense of time and tracking the days of the week. I'm scheduling meetings a lot, so I'm looking at my calendar a lot. I've also started working out regularly too, which has helped me with my sense of routine and my self-care as well. 
The weather is improving here in Minnesota too, which has been really good for my mental and emotional well-being. But how are you doing? What are you doing to manage your anxiety or grief? What did you hear in this episode that was helpful to you? And what have you tried that has helped you care for your emotional and psychological well-being during this period? You can share your thoughts on this episode with me and your fellow listeners. You can post a comment on the website. You can respond to our post on Facebook, or you can share your thoughts in our discussion group on Facebook. You can also email me at thenakedtruthwcs.com or through our Facebook page. To get the latest news, you can like our page on Facebook, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter, follow us on Instagram at thenakedtruthwcs, and yep, it's still there, it's still active, it's still happening. Follow us on Twitter at Naked Truth WCS. Don't forget, the podcast is here to help our community stay connected, so please share your pandemic experience with me. Go to thenakedtruthwcs.com forward slash COVID for instructions on how to contact me. Again, that's thenakedtruthwcs.com slash C-O-V-I-D. And you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I've made all of our episodes from the very first one available for you to catch up, re-listen, and share with someone new. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review on Facebook. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. More importantly, please be safe, healthy, and well. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Eric, and that's The Naked Truth. So yeah, when the history books are written, of course, depending on who wins the next election, and when, the, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when, when the if history there are books, books after the next election, right, right, right. When the history books are written, they will say that the biggest failure mm-hmm. was not getting tests, not getting enough tests out there fast enough. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because so if we had tests, this whole thing would be totally different. Right.